Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, his servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress, Sarah. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do with her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her, that's Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber-Lahai-Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Help us, God, through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to take these words and this story deep into our hearts that it might change and transform us. We pray that as we reflect for a few minutes together this morning on this part of the scripture, that you would use it through the Holy Spirit to help us to see our own need, to help us to see how this story reflects our stories, to help us to see that when we don't get what we want and feel let down and barren, when there's nowhere to turn in life, you were always seeing, you always hear, you always care, and you have shown us that for sure in Jesus. So God, will you help us to have that kind of trust in you today as a result of what takes place here this morning? We pray these things humbly, remembering that we are always desperately in need of your help. So do that, we ask today, in Jesus' name, amen. Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones had a a song on their Let It Bleed album called You Can't Always Get What You Want. And uh, one of the great lines in the chorus of that song goes like this, you can't always get what you want, but if you try, sometimes you find you can get what you need. As oftentimes, Mick Jagger proves to be a capable theologian there. That's the case, at least with this line. Our story today is a story about wanting. It's a story about trying to get what we want no matter what. And it's a story about how God meets us when we come to the end of ourselves, when we have nowhere to go, when we are on the run. 
And because it's a story about those things, it's also a story about each one of our lives. It's a reflection of our own stories. Because we all find ourselves from time to time trapped in the life rhythm of attempting to engineer self-fulfillment and not rest in what God has for us. We all find ourselves eventually at a time where we've reached the end of our own resources, where we have nowhere to go, and where we have to cast ourselves upon God in desperation. So, the Holy Spirit is asking each of us today, can you see your life reflected here in this story? Are you working hard to get what you want and feeling let down and empty? Are you nearing the nowhere to turn to stage of life? If so, we can learn this morning that God hears us, that God sees us, and that God will care for us. We're in the middle of this story of Abraham's life, one of the great patriarchs and father of the people of Israel and through the power of the Holy Spirit and faith in Jesus, father in many ways of each who believes in Jesus for salvation. And last week we saw in Genesis 15 that God has confirmed and given signs to Abraham of these great promises that he made him. Really in Genesis 13, 14, and 15, the main idea or the main theme is Abraham having confirmation from God that the land that God has promised will indeed go to him and to his descendants. But today, beginning in Genesis 16 and really going all the way through the end of chapter 22, through basically the end of Abraham's story, the promise shifts from primarily focusing on the land to now primarily focusing on God promising Abraham a son. And and the narrative tension I want you to see is high. It's high. How is God going to fulfill this promise of a child to Abraham and Sarah? And will Abraham and Sarah continue to believe? That is the question that the narrator is asking us to remember as we read through the story. And so as we keep in mind that big picture, we can see how Genesis 16 plays a role in the larger story. This is a story primarily about Sarah and secondarily about Abraham trying to shortcut their way to the promise. Trying to get fulfillment through human engineering. Trying to deny the truth of that Rolling Stones song, that you can't always get what you want. And the story is also about a minor character in the drama of Abraham's life, this servant named Hagar. And about how God finds her in her her brokenness with an intent to rescue So let's look at Abraham and Sarah and Hagar along with their God. And in looking at them, let's look at ourselves too. For in their story, we see our story. Here's a way to summarize the big idea this morning. A life of fulfillment cannot be engineered by us, but can only be received from God. That's the main idea. A life of fulfillment cannot be engineered by us, but can only be received by God or from God. Three points. First, we'll see that Sarah engineers a shortcut with Hagar. Second, we'll see that God gives a promise to Hagar. And third, we'll see that Hagar sees the kindness of God. Okay? So first, verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 16 tell us that Sarah here is engineering a shortcut with Hagar. Look at verses 1 and 2. We'll see there that re-emphasized for us is the major circumstantial problem of Sarah and Abraham's life. And indeed, of the whole covenant promise. And that is childlessness. Sarah is barren. And more than that, at this point, she is 
older than the normal childbearing age. That's been mentioned in verse chapter 11. That's been mentioned in chapter 15. And here it's highlighted in the introduction of the story. And here for the first time, Moses, the author, gives us a little bit of a sneak peek or insight into how Sarah is internally processing this struggle. Into how Sarah is thinking about the issue of childlessness, particularly given that God has promised her a son, a child. And let me give you a hint. She's not processing it very well. (laughs) Things do not go well for Sarah here. The big question is, will Sarah and Abram keep waiting on God to fulfill his word, or will they take matters into their own hands? And at least in this instance, Sarah is tired of waiting. And she takes matters into her own hands. She suggests to Abram, her husband, that he attempt to have a child with her maidservant, Hagar. Now, it's very likely that Sarah had acquired Hagar while they were in Egypt back in the second part of chapter 12. And notice that she says to Abraham what her purpose is in verse 2. Go to Hagar. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, (laughs) how to skirt around this delicately. Right? That's the pastoral issue here. If you read about this and think, okay, bad idea, Sarah. That would be a very proper insight. You're reading the story correctly. But I think it's helpful to know that this wasn't necessarily a scandalous idea that Sarah had, at least in her day. As we've said before, childlessness in this day and age was an unmitigated disaster. And so oftentimes, women in that world, with the means to do so, would try out, for lack of a better term, surrogate motherhood. And one commentator writes that the mistress could then feel that her maid's child was her own and exert some control over it in a way that she could not if her husband simply took a second wife. So Sarah, it's important for you to get, is not acting irrationally here. She's acting rationally. She is rationally trying to self-will the promise of God to fruition. She is engineering her way to life fulfillment, okay? And guess what? Her engineering results in relational fracturing among everyone involved. And everyone is implicated. The counselor Larry Crabb writes this, Whenever we place a higher priority on solving our problems than on pursuing God, we are immoral. Very briefly, just note that Sarah and Abraham's relationship fractures more (laughs) here. I mean, he did, after all, a few chapters before, send her into the harem of Pharaoh. And now Abram is presented as really just basically passive, and Sarah is presented as controlling. Abraham is disengaged from this entire process, letting his wife plunge herself into pain here. And Sarah and Hagar's relationship, obviously, is fractured as well. Sarah, we see in verse 6, is controlling and abusive of Hagar. And in verse 4, we see that Hagar is disdainful and subordinate towards Sarah. But, But primarily, I want you to see that Sarah does not get what she had hoped for out of her scheme. Her attempts to engineer do not lead to the fulfillment that she longs for. She risks losing the child altogether when Hagar runs away. And even at the end of the story, in verses 15 and 16, Sarah is not even mentioned. 
which is the author's way of saying almost certainly that she's not going to be involved in Ishmael, the child's life. So this woman, Sarah, who wanted so badly to have a child, tries to control the process on her own. And then not only does she not get what she wanted, but she makes what she already has worse. What we see here in Sarah is a great example of what the Bible elsewhere calls idolatry. Idolatry. What do I mean by idolatry? Idolatry is what we are engaging in any time we elevate a good thing to an ultimate thing. And that's what Sarah does. She wants a child. And that is most certainly a good thing, especially since God has promised her one. But she makes that desire ultimate in her heart instead of her God. Longing for children rules the throne room of her life. It occupies the primary place in her heart. Functionally, that is what Sarah worships. And guess what? We do this too. That is, in fact, a primary way that the Bible teaches us to think about sin. Anytime any of us elevate a good desire, a good thing, to an ultimate desire and an ultimate thing, to an object of worshipful longing, that thing is going to disappoint us. It's going to let us down. And the reason for that is because only God can fulfill the deepest desires and longings that all of us, by nature of being human, have. Only God can provide the fulfillment that we all want and need. The reason for that is because our hearts are formed as image bearers and shaped for communion with God first. And when we attempt to fill that desire, when we attempt to fill the God-sized hole in our hearts with lesser things, even if those lesser things are good, we will inevitably be disappointed. When we attempt to engineer fulfillment through something other than worship of the living God, we not only don't get the fulfillment that we want, but we lose even what we already have in the process. Just like Sarah here. C.S. Lewis, as usual, nails this idea in some of his writings. In one essay that's found in God in the Dock called First and Second Things, he writes about it. The quote's up here, and notice how long it is. Yeah, I'm going to read all of it because it's C.S. Lewis. So just zip it and listen. Okay, here's what Lewis says. The longer I looked into it, the more I came to suspect that I was perceiving a universal law. The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses, in the end, not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. Of course, this law has been discovered before, but it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Listen, every preference of a small good to a great of a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice was made. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. From which it would follow that the question, what things are first, is of concern not only to philosophers but to everyone. What things are first for you? What idols are you worshiping? What sits on the throne room of your heart? And how are you attempting 
to engineer fulfillment for yourself in something or someone other than God. Spirit, will you reveal to us right now where each of our deepest desires lie? God, help us in these areas to pursue you first so that other good things will follow. We learn much from Sarah's story here. She tries to engineer fulfillment, and it doesn't go well for her. Secondly, we see that not only does Sarah not get what she wants, but the focus shifts a little bit to this other woman in the story, Hagar. So I want to show you, secondly, that God gives a promise to Hagar, verses 7 through 12. Now, Hagar is implicated in this pretty bad story of the first few verses, as I said. She's treated her mistress, Sarah, dishonorably. The author is very clear about that. She is proud. She is rude. But she's also undoubtedly a victim here. Hagar is driven away by the more powerful woman, verse 6, by the angry and bitter Sarah, and she goes into the wilderness. She's a single woman. She's pregnant She's a foreigner. Abraham does nothing to help her. That, friends, is the definition of vulnerability in the ancient world, as it still is today, by the way. And yet, we see in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord, first time we read about an angel in the Bible, by the way, the angel of the Lord, except for Genesis 3, the angel of the Lord finds her by a spring in the wilderness of Shur. And you need to get that this is most unexpected. Why is this so unexpected? Well, for one, Sarah is a minor role player in the larger story of Abraham's life. You know, she doesn't have many lines in the script. She's sort of a a side cast member. She's not super important in the drama. But more importantly, Hagar is outside of the family of promise. She's a foreigner who had almost certainly come back from Egypt with Abraham. She has no claim on God's promise due to her blood relationship with Abraham. And yet, we see here that God pursues and makes promises to her. The angel is a representative of God. And we read that very clearly, Hagar is not pursuing God here, right? I mean, do you see that? She's not seeking God. She's not seeking anyone. She is running away from everyone and everything that has caused her problems, but God sought her. God tracks her down. And then he makes her promises. He says, I have listened to your affliction. Which is why she is to name her child Ishmael, by the way. That word means, Ishmael means God hears. And when you read of God listening or hearing in the Bible, you can simply translate that as God caring. God caring. He listens to her affliction, and then he makes promises to multiply her offspring too. Not just Abraham's, but her offspring. He will bless her. Uh, The preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse was the pastor of a church in Philadelphia called 10th Presbyterian Center City, Philadelphia, about 50 years ago. And in his commentary on this passage, here's what he writes at this point. We see here with Hagar that God never fails to see what is going on and that he is vitally interested in everything that touches one of his creatures. Isn't that comforting? We may attempt to run away from the things that happen to us, but two things we can never get away from. We cannot elude ourselves, and we cannot get beyond God. A couple of things for us to let sink in here from this encounter Hagar has with God. First, it was never 
and never will be God's intent to only rescue certain people, a certain type of people or a certain family of people. His intent is to rescue all types of people, even as far back as Genesis 16, from all types of backgrounds. God pursues people of all stripes, of all types, of all interests, of all colors, of all languages. I'm reminded here of the story in the New Testament in John chapter 4, where Jesus encounters the woman at the well, the woman from Samaria. And some of you may know that uh, a Jewish person in Jesus' day and a Samaritan person did not speak with one another. What Jesus is doing in, by himself, by the way, speaking to this foreigner woman as a Jewish rabbi is radically crossing racial lines, radically crossing social lines, radically crossing ethnic lines and demographic lines. He says to this foreign woman, an outsider to the covenant promises, a foreigner to God's people, Jesus says to her, John 4.14, whoever, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God's intent is to save all types of people, to make promises to all types of people. We see that even in Genesis 16. Secondly, God loves and goes after sinful and low and broken people. I was amazed to learn this week, I never knew this before, that this is the only time, not only in the Old Testament, but in all ancient Near Eastern literature, that God calls a single woman by name. Only time. He comes to her and he says, Hagar, verse 8. God hears her, God sees her in her fallen condition, in her rebellious running away state, in all of her helplessness, in all of her neediness, God comes after her and makes to her gracious promises, not because she, she was being really religious, not because she had done the right thing, no, she had done the wrong thing. Not because she had earned it or deserved it or merited it in any way. No, God simply chooses to pursue with his gracious love and mercy people that are far, far away from those that we would expect to be close to God. God chooses to reveal himself and make generous promises to the low and the hurting and the sinful and the rebellious and the broken. God cares for the outsider. God cares for the marginalized. God cares for those who no one else would expect him to reveal himself to. Do you find yourself in a similar space today? That's worth asking. Do you feel low? Do you feel broken? Do you feel marginalized? Do you feel needy and helpless? Listen, if that's how you feel, listen, are you aware that God is after you right now? Right now, he is pursuing you with his rescuing love. He knows where you have come from and he knows where you are going. He knows what you need and what you do not need. He knows what he wants to make of you and how it will be achieved. And that's a glorious thing, by the way. You cannot know that yet. You don't see how. 
it's going to work out for you. But it's precisely for that reason that you must lay aside your wisdom and attempts to control and engineer your future and return to the path that God has in his grace called you to. He promises to help you here, just like he did for Hagar. He will make and keep promises to you. He will rescue you. He will bring you home. He cares. He hears. He is for you. And he has proven that to you in Jesus. Just like God pursued Hagar so many thousands of years ago when she was far away, so God has pursued each of us in sending Jesus. The depth of God's willingness to go after sinners is seen in the distance between heaven and earth that Jesus crossed in becoming human. And it's seen in the distance between guilt and forgiveness that Jesus bridged in his death on the cross. It's seen in the width of death and life, which Jesus has taken care of already through his resurrection from the dead. If you don't believe that God is after you, no matter how far away you may feel, simply look at Jesus and see their proof. That's what Hagar saw. And that's what God calls you to see. We see finally, really the only remaining question is how Hagar is going to respond. How is she going to respond to this gracious pursuit of her by God? And we see happily that she responds to this experience of God's blessing and God's grace I think, by faith and repentance. It's a good response. Where do we see that? Well, look at the story again. She responds by faith, I think we see, when she says in verse 13 of God, you are a God of seeing. Now notice that God had said, call, Ishmael, or call your son Ishmael. And God said, I have heard you. And Hagar, as it were, one-ups God here. She says, not only do you hear me, but you see me, God. You are a God of seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. By the way, incredibly, this is the only time in the entire Old Testament where a human gives or ascribes a name to God. Do you know that? When Hagar, a foreign Egyptian slave woman, says of God, you are a God who sees. That's significant. This nobody, this sinner, proclaims a deep truth about what the real God is like. He sees, he cares, he loves Surely she realizes, surely Hagar realizes that she has done nothing to earn or deserve God giving her this promise. Surely she realizes that God cares for those who have been victimized and outcast. Surely she realizes that God extends mercy to anyone and everyone who can see him for who he really is, a God who sees. Hagar believes that. She responds by faith. And she also responds by repentance. God has told her to do a hard thing. In verse 9, she said, or he said via the angel, return to your mistress and submit to her. That's tough. And by the way, think about this. Hagar, at this point, probably wants nothing to do with the religion of Abraham. I mean, what has Abraham done for her? Nothing. When he should have exercised his authority to protect her, he let Sarah boot her out. And so God says, go back. Go back to where your role is and to where your place is and raise your child with Abraham in that family. Yeah, that's going to be messy. Yeah, that's going to cause future problems, but that's what you need to do. Do it. And what does Hagar do? She does it. She goes back. And we see proof of that later in the Bible, by the way, when she shows up again a few chapters later. But also, we read that Hagar bore Abram a son, verse 15. And Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. She 
obeys. She does what God tells her to do. She goes back to where she should be, back to where she belongs. She has her child, and Abraham receives her back. You see, when Hagar saw the reckless and matchless pursuit of God in grace for her, the only response that she can think of is to trust him and to obey him. Yes, you are a God of seeing. Okay, I will return. (laughs) Yes, you do care for me. And because you care for me, even though this doesn't make sense to me, even though I want to run away to Egypt, you must have my best interest in mind, so I will turn around, do an about-face, and go back to this place where I've been victimized, marginalized, where there's some messy background. Right? And the story is the same for us still today. When you can see the reckless and matchless pursuit of God for you in his grace and forgiving mercy, the only appropriate response, really the only rational response on your part and on my part at all is to trust him. To trust that if he's been kind and gracious enough to pursue me to this point, surely he will do in the future for me what he has promised. Do you trust God? Have you believed in him? Are you resting in his promises to bless you in the future? Or are you still trying to engineer the results you want through your own intuition? That's not going to lead you to blessing. It's not going to lead you to fulfillment. The only way to fulfillment is to receive the promises of God in faith. And then to do what God tells you to do. To turn to him in faith And then to turn from your false and shallow and reckless ways of living in repentance. Go back and do what you have been told to do, Hagar, God says. Are you at a place this morning in your heart, in your spirit, where there are things in your life that you know you're trying to sort out, to work out, to engineer on your own? Listen to the story of the gospel. That will not work. In fact, it's possible that you might even lose what you already have in a failed effort to attempt to get what you do not have. The better way is to believe that God will do what he has promised. He's proven that he will do that in Jesus. To trust that and to turn from our idolatry, to turn from our rebellion, to turn from our attempts to engineer and follow him in obedience. That's what we are called to. May the Holy Spirit grant it to us.